Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Marilyn Waite, Program Officer in Environment at William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Marilyn walks through some of the key components of the transition to a climate-friendly or green economy and shares thoughts on how this evolution could impact commercial real estate bonds, mortgages, insurance, and more. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today? I am just back from Costa Rica and I'm in Washington, DC today. Nice. Well, maybe just to start, can you just give us your background? Obviously, you've been very involved in sustainability and climate-related investing. Can you just walk us through your career arc? Sure. So I am a civil and environmental engineer by training, actually a lot of training in buildings and uh, the built environment and infrastructure. I started my career in Madagascar, actually, in water resources. And then I shifted to the energy sector after living for a few months in Madagascar without reliable electricity. So I entered the nuclear energy sector in France and spent a lot of time working on a number of endeavors there. And eventually when I was in corporate R&D, we started to look at acquiring all kinds of renewable energy technologies. So offshore wind and concentrated solar power and even torrified fuel pellets for biomass, all kinds of things. And I realized a lot of our troubles were less on the technology side and more on the investing and finance side. So I kind of shifted focus from project management and engineering and technology to the finance and investment side from there. Left France to go on to China, worked on a number of things there. And then from China, came back to the States um, to join a firm and lead the clean energy practice at an early stage venture firm. And there I was focused on transportation and improving the energy efficiency and goods movement and freight. Um, and we had an investment thesis around that. And I joined the Hewlett Foundation in January 2018 to lead this portfolio on climate and clean energy finance. Wow. So you've had a career in sustainability and climate investing that, that seems like it's spanned continents. And obviously, I'm sure you've built up an enormous amount of experience. But I'm curious, like, at Hewlett Foundation, what do you do? Like, how do you put that to work at Hewlett Foundation? So we have carved out a portfolio at the Hewlett Foundation. It's roughly 75 million US dollars over five years, just focused on climate finance. And it's across three economies, China, Europe, and the United States. And essentially, the goal is to mobilize capital to solve climate change. We know we're spending at least 500 billion US dollars globally and annually on climate solutions. That's not nearly enough. We need at least 1.6 trillion, um, if not up to 4 trillion annually and globally. So how do we get the capital accelerated across these economies where most of the emissions emanate from, at least historically, and where most of the world's capital is domiciled? And so what does that mean? Like, how do you go about doing that? Is, 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 how do you go about enfranchising all that capital? Because I, I totally hear you. And that's obviously something we're very focused on from the real estate industry's perspective. But what are some of your approaches to achieving that? So the strategy is to work across these three economies and two pillars. One is innovative finance and the other is systemic decarbonization of capital. The first really are proof points, how we can use our capital in catalytic ways. I'll give you some examples of that. For example, we helped to capitalize a new, a new credit union called the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. 
So in the U.S., there are over 5,000 banks and over 5,000 cooperative banks known as credit unions. And there's no reason why they can't be a part of this clean energy transition and the green economy transition. And actually, they're well positioned to be at the community level. And so we've helped set up this example and support this example of credit union that can do this kind of lending. And they can also show the other credit unions how to do this. That's kind of on the innovative bucket. We're also putting money into impact funds, such as the Prime Impact Fund, which has a climate first thesis. That's more on the venture capital side. So anything to prove to the market that something is feasible, bankable, investable, that's what we're doing in the innovative finance bucket. In the systemic side, really it's about embedding carbon as a metric. So we follow as financial professionals, return on equity, return on investment, interest rates, all of these things. Do we follow the carbon for the financial transactions? Until we do that, it's, it'll be difficult for us to move systemically away from the high emitting activities towards the low carbon green activities. And so one of the initiatives that we supported is called PCAF, P-C-A-F. It's known as the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. And it's industry led, so banks and asset managers coming together to measure, disclose, and reduce the carbon emissions of their loans and investments. So both of these are the pillars we work with. We also primarily focus on three pools of capital, venture capital, asset management, uh, especially pensions, insurance, uh, mutual funds, and last but not least, the banks through their deposits and lending and credit capabilities. The who is very important in this. So Think about a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid, there are people, consumers, making decisions about where to keep their money, where their money sleeps at night, their bank, how to invest their retirement assets. All of that can be aligned with climate action. Next up on the pyramid level, there are small businesses, medium-sized businesses, likewise, and they have their own balance sheets. Next, we have the non-financial corporates. And then finally, at the very top of the pyramid, we have asset managers that are making these decisions on behalf of their clients. And so we need the, all the layers of the pyramid to allocate capital away from the high carbon towards the low carbon. And in addition to all of that, we need government, which is regulating the entire pyramid, to help set the market rules that will favor that transition as well. So in our two pillars of innovative finance and systemic decarbonization of capital, we're working with all of those layers of decision makers and capital allocators. And, you know, what are some of the challenges? I, I totally understand the thesis of like, how do you get various financial instruments to bear the underlying cost of these externalities related to environmental damage, right? That's kind of been a fundamental problem in enabling any capital market to actually capture these externalities. And I'm kind of asking the question in part because real estate, right, the industry we focus on is such a large capital market. And, you know, fundamentally real estate is a cost of capital driven business, but like, what are some of the best ways you've seen of embedding the actual externalities into financial instruments themselves? So one way, and it sounds so basic, but it starts there, is to actually measure the carbon. So for each loan that a financier does, for each investment, that needs to have a corresponding tons of CO2 equivalent for each mortgage for each commercial real estate deal, that needs to be measured and disclosed publicly and managed away from those high emitting, you know, the carbon, high carbon emitting types of deals towards the low carbon one. With that transparency and that data disclosure, you, you start to see systemic change. And if 
financiers can offer incentives, for example, lower interest rates, if it's a greener deal, if it's, if it's a net zero building, for example, then you'll start to see the shifts. It becomes more financeable and bankable. And those buildings that are just leaking energy and that are inefficient and that pose all kinds of problems for their occupants um, will not be bankable and not financeable. So that's one way that we can start to embed this is simply by requiring, mandating that measurement, disclosure, and then systemic movement movement away from the high carbon to the low carbon, including in the building industry and the real estate industry. And you're seeing some of this today, obviously, with green bonds, right? And I think one of the, the challenges is how do you get the government to effectively provide guarantees, which in turn lower the cost of capital to uses of those bonds, which are greener, right? Which can actually reduce the carbon footprint operationally of, of a building. But it sounds like what you're proposing is actually kind of going almost farther and saying the embodied carbon in a building somehow needs to be embedded in the underlying commercial real estate bonds, or in the case of, I guess, a home, in the cost of that mortgage. And have you seen, I guess, consumers really care about that? And, and how has the process been of getting consumers to really care about bearing those costs internally? I mean, the consumer has spoken in terms of these preferences for, for green and low carbon. I mean, up into a certain extent, depending on which country you are in the world. But all things being equal, the people generally prefer more energy efficient buildings and generally prefer to be on the good side of the environment and things like air pollution, water quality, all of that. We've seen a big movement in terms of consumer preferences for sustainable banking, for example. There's been some fintech disruption there. And so especially millennials choosing to bank and choosing to align their retirement assets and savings with those new disruptors who are fossil fuel free, who are environmentally friendly, who are climate forward, all of that. So we, we've seen that, that shift happen. I think in terms of residential real estate, of course, there's a lot that depends on the location in terms of the price sensitivity, sensitivities, places like the Bay Area, people are just trying to find something that they can afford. So it just becomes a very different equation in terms of preferences and for for green versus energy inefficient buildings. I think when the consumer approaches their bank though, and that bank says we have a lower interest rate, it's this is going to be more affordable for you if you choose this building, which by the way, we know that as a bank, this is going to have a lower default rate. And we just had that data already to show that. Then the well, bank wins. Is, is that true? That, that, that you can actually show well, lower default rates for more sustainable it, homes? Well, we have some data on that. Now, it's not generalizable. We need to collect that data on a much bigger scale. But we have various case studies. We also have case studies for the auto sector as well, the EV loans versus the internal combustion engine loans. Um, but that needs to be scaled uh, wider. We also don't necessarily know the reasons behind that, you know, the for lower default. In, in any case, the you know, we do have a lot of data on occupant uh, comfort, on savings in terms of energy bills. All, all of that is, you know, very well documented as well. So in all things being equal, if the person, if, if that consumer is saving on their energy bill, they're going to be able to afford the, the mortgage more, right? So that's just also a basic underlying premise. Same thing for commercial real estate in, in the event that there's that sharing of costs for, for utilities and things of that nature. So at this point, it's, it's more about action, actually having this mandated in the financial system, having forward-leaning um, institutions, of course. So right now we have over 18 trillion US dollars 
globally that is a part of PCAF that's voluntarily measuring, disclosing, and agreeing to reduce this. These are small credit unions in rural areas. These are very large Wall Street banks. Um, these are banks in Asia, Africa, Europe, US, Latin America, across the board. And so there is a, a new recognition, and it's a pretty recent recognition, but a new recognition that the financial sector is not a passive player in the climate crisis. It's the engine, the, the capital is the engine for the economy and therefore has a big role to play in this transition. And are you seeing any trends? Just you mentioned that kind of the, the global financial system obviously does need to embrace this and either geographically or by sector where particular kinds of financial institutions either in Europe or in Asia or in the US are focused on you know, large multinational banks or smaller credit unions. What are some of the characteristics of like the most progressive financial institutions with respect to embedding these costs in financial instruments? So across the board, not just for, I mean, when you look at climate change holistically, you can't separate it from larger equity issues. So in terms of ESG, right, the environmental, social, and governance, definitely the banks that are members of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, GABV or GABV, definitely the banks um, and asset managers that are B Corp certified, that have went through that very rigorous process by the third party to work beyond profit for financial profit, but also social and environmental returns. Those are going to be some of the most aligned. In the U.S., you also have a whole community development financial institution platform ecosystem, banks and lenders that will also tend to be aligned with climate action and incorporating climate risk into their equation and how they finance things. And then you have, you know, you do have some players that are outside the ecosystem that have really leaned into this and have been leaders and forward thinking. But by and large, those, the leadership at the base has come from those that have this ESG in their DNA and their charters. And they are leading the laggards, which is the good news, because we also need all hands on deck. It can't just be a niche. It has to be the whole sector. Absolutely. And I'm curious when you talk to some of these financial institutions, is it intuitively obvious to them the outsized impact that the real estate industry has in terms of its contribution to the climate crisis? And the reason I ask the question is that I've obviously been talking to a number of financial investors talking about this imperative we have to decarbonize the commercial and residential real estate industry. And when you start to quote the stats, which is that Real estate consumes 40% of all energy globally. It consumes 40% of all raw materials, and it's responsible for roughly a third of all CO2 emissions. Those realities are somewhat counterintuitive to most people. It's just non-intuitive that the real estate industry is as contributive as it is to the climate crisis. I'm curious, do financial institutions know this, or is it just the investors I'm talking to that aren't aware of this? You know, I think it's a great point. I think that there's there's a default to thinking about large-scale infrastructure when it comes to climate by a lot of financial institutions. So the coal plant, the gas plant, as opposed to the everyday environment and anything that's distributed. It seems like it's too right. small to matter. But that's actually collectively what matters most. Also on the financial end, like collectively, it's the distributed financial system. It's not just the one or two players, even if they're very large. So I do think there is this default. And I've, I've actually been in conversations with, I'll, I won't name names, but for example, a very large uh, bank in the U.S. that 
does everything has a, you know the retail and the commercial side and the investment banking side and all and has an asset management arm all of these things and when it comes to the mortgage the mortgage book will downplay the importance of that when it comes to climate it's like well that's more for these other lenders and it's true that a lot of the mortgages in the US now are from non-bank lenders um, like, like Quicken Loans and others however if you're doing any mortgage loan then you are responsible. You know, if you don't want to do the, that kind of business anymore, then sell that off or don't do that. But the, the minute you are in that game, then you are responsible for it. You are financing that. And that is huge. And so I, I do think there is a bit of a disconnect, um, especially when it comes to the residential uh, real estate side and just how important it is for climate and it has to be tracked. And so it's not just your, I do think there's there's more education to be done and one of the, I think, strengths of PCAF, this partnership, is that it covers comprehensively all of these asset classes. And, and it sounds like it's also very empirical because I kind of heard you say two things, which is like one, obviously a coal plant is just visually and intuitively so obvious that that is something to focus on when it comes to mitigating the climate crisis. And I think it feels almost like real estate is this, this culprit that's hiding in plain sight. It's all around us, right? We, we are consuming energy every day. The US economy, our lives happen largely indoors. And so it makes sense that it is so contributive. And the other thing I heard you say, which is really interesting is that in the residential category, I think it, it feels like maybe the, the connection hasn't yet been drawn between the actual performance of mortgages from a default perspective and the sustainability of the underlying homes or the borrowers as the case may be. And so it'll be really interesting to see when that kind of feedback starts to make its way through capital markets, you can imagine that becoming very self-fulfilling, frankly, right? Where if you have a lower carbon footprint house and you, you use less carbon and you consume less energy, you're less likely to default and therefore the cost of your mortgage goes down and that becomes self-perpetuating in a really virtuous way. Does it feel like we haven't quite closed the loop in, in those capital markets though? No, I think until it's required or systemically done, then it will be difficult. You know, one of the interesting things this just makes me think of is that, you know, another one of the major costs of owning or operating real estate is insurance. And I think 10 years ago, the costs of insurance didn't truly internalize a different kind of risk, which is the more existential casualty risk, right, by major climate events, the, the fires in California, hurricanes, and it feels like we've almost crossed a tipping point there where the cost of, of home insurance in some geographies has become so prohibitively expensive that the homes are just not financeable because if you don't have home insurance, it's very hard to in turn get a mortgage. And so to some extent, it almost feels like is, I guess it's a question is like, is insurance kind of the canary in the coal mine? Because we've seen costs rise so dramatically, in particular for residential real estate. Is that a forebearer of what will ultimately have and happen in credit instruments like, like mortgages? I wish it was. I just, I kind of have bad news for that side of things though, because Florida, we know it's risky on the coast of Florida with sea level rise and all the impacts we're already seeing from climate. And there are homes that are not insurable and they're still being built and people are still getting them. And so unfortunately there seems to be something broken in the system where- The feedback loops aren't fast enough perhaps, right? There's a lot. Um, yeah, there, there's a breakdown in terms of this is, this is real, this is happening. It's 
it's not even risk. It's kind of like having, you know, risk managers at banks, they have all the calculations and they, they understand risk in a certain way, but that has to be translated to the average person that's going out and buying that home or, you know, pursuing whatever that risky asset is given all the climate uh, impacts and context there. And it's almost like this prohibitively risky. It's not just that it's risky. There's always risk in everything, but this is this is prohibitive. And unfortunately, there, there's still examples of where even the lack of insurability is still not preventing something from happening, some, some investment from happening. And so I think that we need to take, take into account what's happening there. And so it's not, unfortunately, it's not just the financing. It's not just the insurability and bankability. It's also the narrative and the stories we have about, about climate and how impactful it is and how risky certain decisions are. We haven't taken it seriously in any shape or form. We're not on track. We're still headed to this 3.5 degree world that's not inhabitable. Like it's really, that's why we have to accelerate the entire and get serious about it. And so I think that's you know, there's some things that the financial sector can do, and then there are limits to that. And that there's a part of this that is really narrative change and changing the incentive structures so that, you know, the net zero place with the green roof that has EV infrastructure, better yet, that is, you know, connected to some mass transit, that's the favorable option. And that's the affordable option as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that it's obviously true in the case of a consumer, you know, buying a home, because I think it's, it's too much to put on the consumer to say, you should be educated about every, every single existential climate risk about where you want to buy a home, we would almost expect that the information would flow through insurance premiums or through cost of capital that might make it prohibitive to build a home, as you said, in that very high risk location, but it sounds like it's still happening. And, you know, that's almost an ethical problem, right? It's a narrative problem that we have to convey to the world about, you know, you need to take this seriously. And I think the same is true in commercial real estate because the size of the assets is frankly more consequential. It's the, the amount of capital required, the amount of materials that are required. And we are still building buildings and soon to be uninhabitable locales and they're still getting insured and they're still getting mortgages. So clearly there is a almost a feedback loop or almost a timing issue that, that as you said, needs to be paired with a narrative of how do we educate, whether it's commercial real estate owners or consumers buying a home to integrate these decisions into these huge life or business choices they're making. Yes, there's there's literally this luxury condo. I don't know if you know it I, in San Francisco that is like sinking. <laughs> it's because that part of San Francisco is literally it's like quicksand. It's not built on bedrock. These zones are are highly risky. And, and when when it comes to real estate in the Bay Area, at least before COVID nineteen and the associated changes in the real estate market, people weren't you know both for residential and commercial real estate, not asking the questions and the banking system, insurance system, not really providing answers or, you know, forcing people to, to know about, about these things and residential and commercial off takers about how it's not a great idea. You want to build a building on solid ground. And even that it's just in this, you know, highly priced real estate, both commercial and residential and liquefaction zones. It's kind of, you know, just, still happening and with even with all of the risk that we know about that is associated with it and and yet 
it's still happening. And who bears the cost? I think you're talking about Millennium Tower in San Francisco. And incidentally, I actually rented an apartment, fortunately rented uh, an apartment in Millennium Tower when, when I was living in San Francisco. And I consider myself a relatively well-informed person at the time. I didn't know, nor did anyone that had purchased an apartment there, that it was sinking, in fact. And so in some ways that that kind of unlocks this, this Pandora's box of responsibility. Who is then therefore responsible, right? Because do we blame the banks? Do we blame the developer? Does the risk you know, reside with the consumer? And I think what it all speaks to is there's a fundamental breakdown. There's a fundamental lack of transparency and risk pull through in the capital markets. And that's why I think what you're focused on is so interesting, right? Because I spend so much time with the commercial real estate industry, which is so focused on cost of capital. And I think we're in the very early days of where, you know, new financial instruments like green bonds hold the promise of, not, you know, not having to rely on one's ethical sensibilities about why they should decarbonize, but making a real financial imperative to do so. And I think that's exciting, right? Because then you have total alignment, then externalities are captured and these massive time delays are no longer flowing through our economy and causing undue damage. That's right. really interesting. So I guess one, one question I have, which I always ask is, you know, we speak to a lot of large commercial real estate owners that today are, I would describe it as like finding religion around their need to embrace sustainability and decarbonize their assets. And it's coming from a variety of factors, but from your vantage point, what would you encourage them to do? Like if you were advising a commercial real estate owner that truly cares about this, what should they be doing? What are the questions they should be asking today? So I would, as a part of your tracking system for real estate deals, both you know your current portfolio and future projections, embed climate, embed greenhouse gas emissions, embed the look at the maps that we have. There are maps across the world, not just for the United States, around climate risk and where the hot zones are, and look at the you know really overlay that and consider that when doing new deals and for existing deals, find out what the situation is to then improve those that infrastructure to enable the the, the transition that has to happen across the board. So. I am on the board and investment committee of a, a fund that does commercial real estate. And so we've started to do that. Whenever there's a new proposed deal, we have that map. We have a tracking system. There's a certain amount of other considerations like diversification geographically. But we are looking at that and, and making decisions, incorporating that climate risk because it is, it is real, it's tangible, it's material, and it just makes you know, financial sense to protect against that risk. There's plenty of other great deals that won't present that same level of risk. Granted, we all have to collectively transition, otherwise nowhere is really safe in terms of, in terms of physical assets. But there's, that has to be a part of the, the tracking system and decision-making criteria for new deals, uh, as well as the existing portfolio. Well, Marilyn, it's been so interesting talking to you and the, and the work you're doing is obviously so important. And, you know, obviously we're working, I guess, on different sides of the problem, but I'm rooting for your success in, in helping capital markets more efficiently price in this, this existential risk that, you know, you and me and the whole world and commercial real estate owners are facing imminently right now. So thank you. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. 
All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.